Welcome to On Strategy Showcase, the classics episode. I'm Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at OnStrategy1. That's the number one. And you can see the creative work and connect with our guests uh, on our website. That is OnStrategyShowcase.com. And don't forget to follow or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you'll receive all the latest episodes. And if you have any questions about this episode or any of our episodes, you can send them to me at hello at onstrategyshowcase.com. That's hello at onstrategyshowcase.com. I'll select a few and attempt to get them answered by the guest for that particular show. And then we can uh, feature the answers on future episodes. Today's campaign in the Classics series launched 22 years ago. Uh, We've done one on Avis, which was, you know, close to 60 years ago. Uh, This one's a little younger, but it's the brilliant Live Richly campaign from Citibank that started in 2000 and ended in 2006. Yeah, it's uh, still one of the best campaigns in consumer banking I can remember. And it has such a unique voice and a unique perspective for a bank the size of City. It was really extraordinary at the time that it launched. Uh, We hear about the campaign from the pitch stage to the launch and then to its final demise after six years. And it's very surprising uh, why it happened. And you'll hear about that, of course, towards the end of the episode. A few other interesting things to note before we get started. Number one, the strategy was inspired by the words of a U.S. postal worker in a late night focus group. I always love to hear about this because this has happened to me so many times too, where either through interviews with uh, with the consumer or through an employee inside an organization, everything just opens up and it's extraordinary. And we touched on this a lot in the, uh, the Avis uh, episode also about the fact that sometimes just something that is casually said uh, when you're talking to an employee or to average person on the street can just unlock everything for you as a strategist. Uh, The second thing that's important to note here is that the line, there's more to life than money, actually came from the planner. So it's always awesome to see the planner's imagination or the planner's knowledge can lead to a line that ends up framing the entire campaign and and in many ways is a is a fun is fundamentally an idea in and of itself. And number three, the entire campaign would never have happened if not for two guys on a speakerphone who spoke up after other creative teams had dismissed the strategy entirely. Those two creatives were Steve Driggs and Greg Hahn. Of course, Greg Hahn, we know more recently as um, one of the co-founders of Mischief, No Fixed Address uh, here in the U.S., who, who have been doing phenomenally well the last couple of years. And then lastly, and I love this one, uh, Fallon, uh, which is headquartered in Minneapolis, uh, here in the Midwest in the United States, doubled its effort on the pitch because of what Lee Clow was rumored to have said to his team at Shiat Day, because Shiat Day and Fallon were competing against each other in the final. Lee Clow is rumored to have said that we're not going to lose to a bunch of Midwest farmers. And this really pissed off Pat Fallon and caused him and the entire team to double down their energies to win the business, which of course they did. So this is Dan Sutton. He led the planning team at Fallon, Minneapolis on the pitch and throughout the campaign as it rolled out across the globe. But this, uh, for me, was a real joy, this episode, and I hope you like it. And let me know if there are any questions. It's Citibank, Live Richly on On Strategy Showcase Classics. Enjoy.
my understanding is that that this started out as a pitch. Is that true that it was a pitch, an RFP response? Yes, it absolutely was. And that was, uh, thank you for reminding me, that, that was an amazing part of the moment because the pitch came down to Fallon versus Shia Day. And Shia Day <laughs> at its pinnacle of time. But if I can back up even, you know, it's fun to talk about what that meant to the agency. But truly, this strategy began with the clients a year before the pitch. So I'll rattle some names um, for you. But, you know, the leadership of the consumer bank, Marge Magner, brought in an amazing CMO, Ann McDonald. Uh, and underneath her, she built an amazing team. Brad Jakeman, probably many people know, and Floor Goldsberry, Todd Harvey, Tim Turan, Jennifer Lindauer, James Bazaki. These are all people who have gone on to uh, amazing careers. And they spent a year before the pitch, what I call plowing the earth of city, getting it ready to germinate the seed of something that hadn't been done before. That's just classic blocking and tackling of change management, not expecting the agency to make the change happen, but to bring the idea, but they had to make the organization ready for it. They had ready, ready for ready for what? Ready for doing something disruptive. Um, and it was really the the catalyst was really the business strategy, ultimately, of Sandy Weil had acquired all of these different um, entities, including travelers, um, underneath that city umbrella and brought it into one brand. And the business strategy was, we have created a financial services supermarket here. And the goal has to be that all of these different product offerings are available in the supermarket, but why should you visit our market to begin with? And the ultimate business goal then is to cross-sell different products from different aisles, if you will. And in order to do that, people needed to believe in a brand, not just a bucket of uh, products and different services. So the pitch um, and the brief that we received was remarkable from these clients. They were asking for refreshingly unbank-like work. Those two words were literally in the brief to the agencies. Everything about business, all of that kind of stuff. But they said, we want unbank-like work. Why did they feel unbank-like was the solution? Uh, a couple of reasons. One, again, these were incredibly driven, highly sophisticated marketers. Like, like had they uh, come out of, had they come out of uh, notable brands that were doing sort of, uh, sort of uncategory like work for the category they were in? It's interesting. Not, none of them individually until they came together at City. Interesting. Um, they all had really great experiences, great careers, but none of those marquee things that we think about um, that define people's careers until they came to city. The RFP gets released. There's only two agencies, which is unusual. Why do you think there was only two? Well, I, um, I, I may have misstated. It started very broad. Um, okay. 
and came down to in the final those two okay Um, from fallon's perspective uh this was going to be a pivotal moment that took us from being a boutique um really noteworthy creative agency onto a huge national stage and ultimately global stage so there were no stops that were not pulled um, in terms of amount of time work talent allocated money invested and when it came down to that final versus shia day i have to tell you i'm not from the midwest um I saw Midwestern grit that I did not know existed. <laughs> Pat, you know, we had heard through the grapevine that Lee Clow had told the Shia team, we are not going to lose to a bunch of farmers. Oh, <laughs> <killer>. <laughs> Lord. And, you know, it was a small world. It still is a small world. When that came, uh, came in the door of Fallon, um, I can tell you, while Pat Fallon was not a tall man, he had a really big presence. And that presence got bigger when he was angry. Um, And that really lit a fire under the agency. Um, And, you know, that's when it became clear that whatever it took, we were going to win. You guys get in, you get into the finals strategically. Have you sort of already shot your idea, strategy idea? in the earlier rounds or was it just sort of credentials and some discussions and, or had you already teed up your strategy or did you now need to shape it for the final round? Well, so, you know, there were actually three rounds. Um, first round, typical credentials, chemistry check. Um, and of course uh, it may be commonplace today, but in that day and age, you always wanted to be one step further along than what was asked for. Yes. Yeah, sure. We had we did credentials and all of those kinds of things, but then we began to engage the client in the, the sense of the category, who do they idolize, all of those kinds of classic questions. So you begin to suss out their appetite, and City envisioned itself being an icon brand. They wanted to be there with Disney and Nike and Apple um, at that point, and they knew that was going to take a huge level of support on their end internally and partnership externally. Um, And they demonstrated their commitment to that. The next round was tell us what you think our brand should be about. Um, And it's interesting, you know, one of the questions you had mentioned to me earlier was what were some of the hypotheses? Yes. Context, right? So context matters in strategy. We know this. Um, We think about it today as cultural tension, perhaps. Um, That time and place for this pitch was where the phrase irrational exuberance was coined. So we're talking 2000, dot-com boom. Kids were getting rich in their bedrooms, you know, doing things, um, not untoward things, but doing things that were not really even accessible to the average middle-class person. And they were on the front cover of every magazine, Um, ultra class. It was always about the flash and the money. And so to your question about hypotheses, as we went in, we were like, gosh, 
you know, financial success, that has to be maybe one of the territories that we play in as a banker that we should explore. And, and, you, and, you're, and you're telling the client this in round two? Yeah. Okay. And, you know, here we're going in financial success. It's, you know, and surely we're living in this day and age. If you look at media and you looked at the cultural, um, it's got to be all about the money and how far you can go and success measured in financial terms in your balance sheet. And clients not along along, you know, certainly that is truth. It's an observation. It's a cultural context. And it's also an observation that's available to everyone. Right? And so what were the other, were there other ones that you put on the table, Dan, at that, that, in that was, second room? The, that, was, that was the kind of the core of it um, as we sat down um, and talked with them. Going into having made it through the second round, with some of those observations, but, but how, let me let me stop you there for a second because that's yeah. that seems for for an agency that recognizes that it needs to take the extra step. Why was there just one on the one sort of hypothesis on the table? Um, did you guys believe so strongly in that one, or were you restricted to only having one? I think uh, I you know I can't speak to other agencies, but. Fallon didn't believe in, at that time in putting options on the table. <laughs> um, Fallon believed in having a strong point of view. Nice. Um, from that perspective, and with that point of view, we could be wrong. We certainly were were humble enough to see we were wrong, but we weren't going to come across as you could go here, you could go there, you could go over here, or you could go over there. I love that. Love that. Right. From that perspective. So there could be pushback on that one point of view. Absolutely. And if that was the case, we would have gone back and found another point of view, but we're not putting a menu on the table. Love that. Absolutely love that. So you had all, had you already done your, your planning work, your research, had you already sort of framed the live richly idea in that second round? Or was it just a conversation about a loose hypothesis and general discussion about that territory? Well, yeah. So it was, you know, during the speed of, as you know, during the speed of pitch, pitch speed, light speed, you had people doing things uh, concurrently in lots of different ways. So that was for that hypothesis was formulated predominantly from talking to Yankelovich, GFK Roper at the time, which no longer exists, again, dating me. Um, and we had at that same time begun fielding focus groups, um, journals with people in the context of their lives, but we didn't have all of that back. Um, as we were coming back into this. So we knew if we made it to the third round, we were going to have more learning. And simultaneously with that second round and doing some of those groups, being out there myself day and night, what we began to really find is that when you asked people uh, you know, about money and financial success and all that kind of stuff, you really got to expected places. And that was not going to deliver on the brief of refreshingly unbanked like. 
let me take you back because I, because this this is gold to me. Okay, so <laughs> you, you guys, you you sit down. Maybe some of your planners are actually facilitating the focus groups. Maybe not, but you obviously have a research plan. You before you go out and you conduct these interviews and groups. What is the ask that you guys have of the people conducting the research? Is it are you going after something specific? Um, and then you obviously needed to pivot, but what were, what were you trying to explore initially in the groups? What was the conversation about? Uh, so in, in pitch groups, as you know, as opposed to research groups, you are looking for nuggets. And sometimes that can be just an off the cuff comment from a consumer, right? And then you go, Oh wait a minute! Let's talk a little bit more about that, and then you throw the guide out the out the window. So you're right? just talking to people about their banks, about um, their perception I mean, of banks, about that's and no, and, and about money, right? You're saying money then, so that's yes. a different thing than talking about banks, right? Yeah, it's very it's very different. You know, banks are obviously closely related to money um, from that perspective, but it's one level up from bank. So, as we've learned so far, the team has been struggling in research groups with the generic responses they were getting when they talked about banking and financial success. They'd done a number of rounds of research and groups and hadn't surfaced anything that really was exciting them. Then, as we're about to hear, the moment came that unlocked everything. It was a simple comment from one person in a focus group that changed the center of gravity in the room and for the planner. The trick would be how to frame it in a way that would be appealing to the masses. So here is the uh, unlock. So who was monitoring those focus groups? I was. Um, And our planners did. (laughs) Um, And for me, as a strategist, um, and everybody's got their own style. For me, there is nothing better than having a conversation with people to unearth ideas. Yes. Um, and you can call that a focus group if you want. You can call it sitting in the barber chair, getting your haircut, talking to your barber. You can call it whatever you want. Um, I don't care. But there was a U.S. postman in one of our focus groups, average, ordinary guy. And we were talking about financial success as what, well, gosh, here's what you see in the papers and here's what you see in the magazines and on TV and the news. And he said to me, Dan, I don't need all that. I've got enough. I've got enough to be happy. And I was like, Okay, we are now (laughs) out of the we're out of the bubble. That was the nugget for me. That was the unlock moment. Love it. Financial success wasn't about, you know, how much I have. It was about, am I happy um, within that? And that began the redefinition of financial success from financial terms to the idea of reprioritizing, of living happily within your means. That became our definition of of financial success. 
So it's that interesting was, to me because I've had that exact same thing happen to me. And, and like you, I have always loved to moderate the groups myself when I can, um, because it's, 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 it's so, it's so rewarding on many levels. But I, when I've had that happen, I've always noticed that the entire conversation in the room now changes. The people who were talking about banking are now talking about money and it's, and, and where it fits into their lives. So after that, after that postman made that comment, did it completely change how other people now started to talk and think about it? Did it become almost this this sort of real-world example of how communications done the right way changes the conversation, the way people think about banks? Yes, because it it puts banks in a different context. It's like right. the proof in the pudding. It's like you're seeing in real life the ability of a different way of talking about a bank is changing how everybody else thinks about it. Exactly. And and that's where I was headed with the marketing, because if at a micro level, that insight can change an eight to 10 person conversation, how do we amplify and take that conversation nationally for a brand and yeah. change the conversation from that perspective? So that's where the discussion guide changes. That's where the opportunity to do something unbank-like. Because what would a bank do? A bank would talk about itself. It would talk about oh, that's money. a great point. Because you already have a you already have a, um, a, a not a dictate, but you already know that they want to be unbank-like. So now you're like, okay, this is unbank-like. Because I was always thinking, Jesus, that's that's a great it's a great uh, unlock. But the question is, is it a big enough business opportunity? Um, but you already had the marching orders of to be unbank-like. Exactly. And that's what gave us permission in mining for those nuggets and the groups and the journals and all that kind of stuff, Fergus, to say, okay, we thought unbank-like might be not talking about a bank's products and service. Let's talk about money, that next level up. No, we have to actually talk about how money fits into your life and banks are a tool, but that allowed us to continually evolve the focus groups until we found something that would met that bar of refreshingly on bank like. Because anything below that, it it might have been insightful about money, it might have been insightful about banks, but they didn't want to be bank like. I know that some of the things that have been written, um, I'll read out a couple of things that I think sort of go to the attitude, the stated attitude of this, what you what you ended up labeling uh, as balance seekers, right? These were yeah. what you ultimately labeled your target as. And you said that these are people who strive to do better for themselves, but not at the expense of their lives. They're people who define wealth by the little moments in their lives. Um, by having things to look back on being equally as important as having things to look forward to. Did you find that these sorts of characteristics or attitudes were commonplace, even amongst people who felt that they were highly pressured to be something other than that? So we live in a bubble, right? Whether it's politically or economically, we're super yeah. privileged in advertising. Um, and when you get out of that bubble and you get out of the major metros, these are real conversations that people have. And they may not have it as a framework, but and they may be doing it 
unconsciously as well as consciously making those little trade-offs. Hey, you know what? It's worth it to splurge a little on this experience with my kids before um, they go off to college. Um, even though that means I might have to give up my latte for a few months <laughs> because yeah. I want those memories and those moments together. That is a, an amazing investment to make. If you want to think of it in financial terms, I'm investing in them. I'm investing in my life, those memories, and I'm willing to sacrifice that latte um, and maybe even, I don't know, some future-oriented thing. Maybe I contribute a little less to my 401k because this moment with them is never going to be here again. In American culture, we have to we have a tendency, of course, to think of terms in, in or think of things in black and white terms. It's either all about more or all about sacrifice. And what we discovered in there is it's about trade-offs. So yes, I want more. Is it and yes, I want, I'm okay with less. Both are true. Both can be true. And given any situation, moment, or time, we're making trade-offs between today and tomorrow, what we want and what we need. And there's no reason it has to be about just one or the other. That's why we called them balance seekers. It, it, it wasn't just because they were looking for, you know, today's world, balance in their life. No, they were balancing these trade-offs. Um, and that's an, uh, a misnomer often about that balance seeker term. It's not about life balance. It's about balancing wants and needs, today's needs, tomorrow's desires. Yes, I want to be able to retire. And I want to be able to go out to dinner today. I want both. Maybe what this is really about was the fact that it wasn't that they wanted themselves to be mirrored back at them. But they didn't want the campaign to be about them. They wanted the campaign to be about a bank that reflected back unbank-like values like their own. Exactly. And recognize, so they wanted to understand that a bank, or they wanted to hear that a bank understood those trade-offs, that it wasn't just about the money, and could talk about its products and services as a means to facilitating living happily within your means. You come up with this target audience. Um, I, I assume you, at some point then you socialize it internally and then you ultimately socialize it with the client. Um, I can imagine there's a conversation at some point where somebody says, how do you size that market? How do you size um, the, the people who have that attitude compared to some other attitude is the is the because we're this is not a small regional bank here this is an international powerhouse financial services how do you how do you size this or do, do they number one do they ask that question and and how do you answer it um so yes they're a bank they ask that question <laughs> <laughs> um first the, the first question they ask is prove it that these people exist then prove it that they make valuable customers, right? Because if, if people are content and not relentlessly striving for more, does that mean 
that they're going to grow with us, um, things along those questions. And, you know, then show us, is there a big enough brand opportunity um, and growth opportunity in this audience? Um, we leaned heavily at that time into Simmons syndicated data. And what we did is spend a lot of time taking what we learned in qual and modeling it through attitudinal statements, both about life, about money, and about banks that we felt were arguably true of what we were hearing and reflective in qualitative and began to show, hey, you know what? This is actually over 50% of the U.S. population, U.S. adults. And when we began to then go in and identify kind of what are their financial behaviors um, that play out, they're actually incredibly responsible with their money. So better credit scores, hey, that's really attractive to a bank. Um, they make good, moderate levels of income. They're not going to be your wealth management customer, um, at least not in the near term, but that's not really who what this campaign is geared for. How do we get people engaged in the everyday products and services that a bank offers? Um, and all of the different financial behaviors really began to play out. They do contribute to their 401k. They do buy insurance. They do own a home or aspire to own a home. But how do you how do you get to that though? Because that's not that's not going to come out of Simmons, is it? Uh, a fair amount of that can come out in Simmons once you develop that profile that reflected what we were hearing, the attitudes and behaviors. Right. Then, you know, syndicated data, um, even more so today than back in those days, can draw up a pretty rich profile. Now, what we did have to do for the final um, afterwards was do a quantitative survey, and then they went back in and typed their own database of customers based on all of the attitudes and behaviors. And sure enough, it yielded that attitudinal psychographic of wanting to live happily within your means really proved up and yielded up their most valuable customers, the ones who weren't churning who weren't moving from bank to bank based on a checking account interest rate offer, things along those lines. When did you present this idea of, of there's more to life than money? Was that in the final or in the, in the semifinal, we'll call it? In the final. In so the going final. into that final, we were, or sorry, into that semi is when we were thinking financial success. Let's elevate talking about a bank to talking about money. And through those conversations, we came back and when we got selected to go into the final, that's where the idea of advocating a healthy approach to money, which would be crazy, right? But we felt very, you want to talk about a cultural tension again in an age of irrational exuberance that you would have thought American culture was obsessed with money. Hey, let's have a healthy approach. It's important, but it's not everything. Now, this is interesting because I think that because I, I entered into this conversation um, without knowing this, and you've sort of unlocked it for me, which is, and I think it's important for the listeners to realize, and I'd love your opinion on this, Dan. If they were not a bank that wanted to be unbank-like, and, and that was their stated goal, if they had not made that stated goal, do you think this would have worked? 
or sold? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 it might have worked in culture, but it wouldn't have ever seen the light of day. But it might have worked. It might have worked with different language. So this is what I'm finding really interesting about it is because a lot of the things you're talking about, the attitude, attitudinal issues, the psychographics, the desires, how how they think about money and life, et cetera, it, um, it could have worked, but not with uh, an overt uh, brand platform idea like there's more to life than money. I think it's that line that would have killed it, but it's a super sound strategically. Yeah. Yeah. Would you agree? Yeah. I, and I will tell you, you know, I think I shared the story of presenting the brief internally, um, literally, you know, after doing groups and groups and flying back at midnight, writing the brief in my kitchen. I remember the time, 2.30 in the morning, and briefing, you know, all those legends. I'm sitting there going, how, you know, two things. How do we describe these people? And that, you know, that was really hard in a sentence. How, it's people who want to live rich lives, not get rich. About 4.30 in the morning, I can tell you, it's like, God, what would be the most unbank-like thing? that a bank could ever say. And I'm one of those guys who, believe it or not, has got post-its of sayings. I believe, you know, wisdom of searching the internet. What would a bank would say? God, you know, what do I believe here? Well, they're saying there's more to life than money. Okay. Um, so you pen that, that line. You pen that line. Well, somebody said there's more to life than money that way before me, but that was what I wrote in the brief. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. amazing, man. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, Brilliant. I will, credit, I will take credit for, you know, people who want to live rich lives, not get rich. Um, and I'm presenting it. I'm exhausted. Candidly, after I presented it, there was pretty universal silence and skepticism around the room oh man and and i thought i was gonna get fired um yeah i was like i'm done and so much for that run of going to fallon i have <laughs> gone you know one one bridge too far <laughs> um and unbeknownst to me there were two really young creatives on the polycom who what's a polycom what's a right polycom? and I, as i said that i was like oh my god i said this yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well back in the days when you had conference calls not zoom calls there was this device that would sit in the middle of the conference room table and i don't even know what it's called today but we'll just call it we'll just call it the speaker they're on the speaker phone they're on the speaker there we go. Um, and two young guys, they were out on production at a shoot in L.A. And uh, their names happened to be Greg Hahn and Steve Driggs. And they chirped up as the room was quiet and said, hey, we get it. Um, and I have to tell you, you know, when you think about Steve Driggs and Greg Hahn, um, even when you think about Greg Hahn and the level of success that he has enjoyed today, um, Steve Driggs, amazingly unsung, talented copywriter, two of the most down to earth people you will ever meet. 
and them chirping up and saying, you know, that was my Hail Mary. It was like, oh my God, somebody at least understands what I'm saying here. They pipe up, they they think they've got something, and then what happens? Well, and, and so there's, you know, basically a lot of concepting going on um, from that day forward. But literally the next day, Greg and Steve mail in a couple storyboards and a tagline. And one of the storyboards, you know how rare this ever is, um, and anybody who's been in advertising ever is, one of the storyboards was exactly as it ultimately was shot. Um, no changes. And it was we pitched it and presented it in the final just from scrap, and it ran as final. They came back with the tagline, live richly. And of course, that came out of the insight of people wanting to live rich lives, not get rich. And they redefined what living richly meant. So live richly, again, in that context was, okay, I know what live richly is. It's all those things that I see on those magazines. And it's 12-year-olds who are billionaires. And it's all this kind of stuff. And the content of the advertising redefined and reframed in a disruptive and incredibly unbanked way what it means to live richly, those small moments, the trade-offs that we make. My favorite ad, um, you know, that came back in and was that ad was a shot of one of our producers Teddy Knudsen, unfortunately, who is no longer with us, putting a essentially a GoPro on his head and spinning his young son around, just twirling him around and around him. That's the visual. And it has a silent line. There's no voiceover, beautiful soundtrack behind it as the kid is spinning around and we're seeing it from the dad's point of view. A sure way to get rich fades down, up comes, count your blessings. There's more to life than money. City, live richly. And, you know, I wanted to cry. You can Google it and find it today. Spinning Kids City, Live Richly. And it was part of a series, like four or five different spots based on that sort of beautiful simplicity. Hats off to the teams that began to work on that brand campaign because another thing that was refreshingly unbank-like when it came to execution then was, hey, we're not going to have a voiceover. We're going to keep it really quiet we're not going to contribute to the noise lots of debates about that interesting yeah wow Internally in and and why was that uh, felt to be important believe it or not it was huge a component of breakthrough (laughs) of breaking through wait a minute 
the television's quiet. What, what is that? <laughs> What's uh, going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just nice. music playing around. Um, so, you know, that quietness. There was, in the early spots, you'll see um, there was a, a two-step line in the signature. There's more to life than money. There's a bank that understands that. Literally being so explicit about that. A lot of debate. Do we need that line when you get into the executional nuances? Or by saying it, are we simply we already demonstrating it? Over time, everybody got a lot more comfortable and simplified, and we were able to take that line out as the campaign got seated um, within that. And to your point, there was a whole raft of spots that were shot by Errol Morris after that. Little vignettes, little reflections, things that put money in the context of life as a uniquely, refreshingly unbank-like statement from a bank brand. So it was all it was all about sort of real people doing things that really mattered to them, right? That 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 their money allowed them to do this and that they were that they were that they felt that these were their moments of joy. You forgot this in the middle. <laughs> what did I forget? The second verse. Oh, did I? Yeah. So let me read out a couple of the headlines from Outdoor. Outdoor was a huge part of this, Outdoor and Print. And and the art direction, I'd love to get your your thoughts on too. But let me first read out a couple of the headlines. And it just gets to the tone that you had to strike because I gotta think that there were some that there were some areas that you needed to avoid, some tonal or atti- attitudinal, but you struck it perfectly with these because this the danger with this could have been that it came across as being preachy, but it never did, right? So here's some of the headlines. This, this, is, this, is, uh, this is out of home. One says, go ahead, use the good China. Your truly valuable hours will not be found on a timesheet. He who dies with the most toys is still dead. Save money, hoard friends. The bank for the upwardly normal. I mean, those are examples of of, uh, of of some of the outdoor, but the 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 print work was just brilliant again in its simplicity. What what sort of inspired that very um, um, Spartan art direction style? Because it's just headlines. There's no images, just headlines and a logo. Yeah. So um, it was an evolution. That art direction on the out of home what was a process. Um, Candidly, when we start, there were those lines. Those lines were always part of it. And you nailed it. it the, the, the balance was always not get telling people how to live. That was always a tricky balance. How do we elicit a smile? How do we help people feel like their priorities, again, in the context of press and culture, their priorities are actually recognized and acknowledged so it was more about reflecting than it was about telling uh, from that perspective. Was it always that simple in outdoor? Because you, you created what 
arguably at that time would be labeled today as this sort of distinctive brand asset where the ads were just unmistakably city. Yeah. So um, essentially the way we began to, to see it is first it, there were a couple lines always on the, on the outdoor in the beginning. And we began to realize that nobody was paying attention to that and it was wasted and it was actually distracting. So let's remove a little extra line because it, it almost began to undermine the genuine authenticity of the reflection um, back to people. And what we began to realize it was the marketing itself became an asset. To your point, I love that language because that's the way a bank thinks of it. It became a differentiating asset in addition to products and services and all of those kinds of things. The marketing became something that people looked forward to. Um, and so if you lived in a, a major market, let's take New York, you got a new set of city work every quarter. This was a quarterly campaign every quarter another 12 to 20 of these boards would go up and this went on for four years so think of the volume of that work um, that had to come out the number of people who contributed to it over time not only greg and steve but bob moore john matezik Lone Tatarka, Scott Cooney, Steve Sage, you know, it, the list of creatives goes on endlessly. And the burden on the uh, planning team to come back with not lines, but insights and continue to fuel it and continue to understand what's resonating. Where's that balance that you're talking about? Um, the out of home became became the brand. The manifestation and everything else um, certainly supported it and brought more emotion to it, dimensionalize it. But out of home was it, which is crazy to think about in today's day and age, right? Was that able to become an enterprise-wide platform for all of the products and services across city? So it became enterprise across the consumer bank. Okay. City rich, not across the commercial bank. Um, and by commercial, I mean the B2B side. And it's, you know, it also became um, global in that sense um, from that perspective. I'll, I'll return to the commercial piece in a moment, but it became globally city consumers. So, does this sentiment of there's more to life than money, does it translate into Western cultures? Does it translate into Asian cultures? What we found was that human truth of people want to live rich lives, not get rich. The balance of living happily within your means might tip a little one way or the other, but the truth rang true. Um, and the idea of a bank saying there's more to life than money, totally unbank-like in any other culture as well. So the campaign, Dan, went on for, was it for five years? Yeah, it launched in 2000 and continued, I would say it launched a little bit in 2000, ultimately changed in 2006. Why did it change direction? So remember that magic moment where we began our, our conversation around times and collections of people? 
Um, and I just alluded a little bit to it of that the brand strategy did not stretch over to the commercial bank, to the B2B side of a bank, regardless of what country you're in. And um, perhaps a well-known fact, but if you work in the financial services category, the bulk of the money is made on the commercial side. So guess who has a very large voice in decisions? So as the city consumer brand campaign globally became more and more visible and was actually becoming incredibly successful, it began to eclipse the B2B side. It also created friction internally within the bank. Uh, and at the end of the day, the commercial bank leadership won out. That's where the power is. And most all of those clients that I talked to um, exited in 2006, and there just wasn't commitment behind it. The tide had shifted within city, and as crushing as it was, it went away, and they actually reverted um, in many ways back to very bank-like advertising. Yeah, which continues, which, um, well, well, very bank-like, yes, which continues today with the, the work that's been done, unfortunately. What a, what a great conversation, man. This has just been a total joy. Um, did we miss anything? Did we miss out on anything that uh, is important for us to cover? No, I, I, you know, for me, the lessons are great team. And I would, you know, I would have to absolutely salute the planners who worked with me over the course of time. Um, many of whom, you know, rose to their own awesome fame. Um, Spencer Bame, who worked on the identity theft campaign. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, it, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother podcast, Fergus. It really is. Um, it, des it deserves it, too. Brilliant work. We should do that, actually, then. Uh, well, let's see if, if we do it. Let's see if we can get Spencer to be part of it, because yeah, great he really idea. has ownership a part of it. But others... You know, Ann Prentice, Chris Murphy, Kate Morrison, Murray Hardy. You know, these are all people that I feel incredibly fortunate. And I've probably overlooked some, and I, you know, heartily apologize, um, that made a profound impression upon me that I felt a privilege to get to work with. And all of their contribute contributions were, you know, equally as important as anything to making that campaign the success. Um, that it ultimately was. It's Dan Sutton. He is now founding partner at Roundpeg Consulting in Minneapolis. Thanks for coming on on Strategy Showcase uh, Classics Edition. Thank you for having me, Fergus. I look forward to uh, look forward to hearing more of your work on Brilliant. Strategy. Brilliant. Thank you, man. And we'll see everybody on the next episode. <laughs>